Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you please open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15, beginning with verse 21. Matthew chapter 15, beginning with verse 21. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Jesus went up, excuse me, Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father God, we give you praise for this book, which is not the word of man, but the word of God. And we pray that you will open our eyes and our hearts today that this account of this woman of faith will come to possess our hearts and to make us live in humility under you. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of every one of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's hard to open the Bible anywhere and not get smacked in the face. And by that I mean that the Bible, being God's word, is completely opposed to us and to everything that we stand for, to the stupidity of our brains, to our, um, to our sinfulness. We're sinful, we're finite, we are flesh, and consequently the perfection of God and his word slaps us up the side of the head. And this is true everywhere in scripture, and you need to have an unerring instinct to see where you're getting slapped every time you open the Bible. It's just a good posture to take. Uh, Scripture is God's word. It's not man's word, and therefore it doesn't connive at our sin. It doesn't flatter us. It's not telling us what we're owed. It doesn't look at us as entitlement babies and try to reassure us that what we think God needs to give us is, is correct and that if we wait that God will give us what we think we deserve. Now, all of scripture is this way. If you weren't listening to the scriptures, all of them that were read already in this service this morning, if you aren't already offended by God, and by his word, clean your ears out. Because already scripture, in what you heard, has been heinous, horrible, offensive, absolutely contrary to the way you and I think. So for instance, where? Well, men will desire death, but it will be withheld from them. And this is God speaking. And God is in control of that torment. And even then, they didn't repent. So that's an accurate description of us, that without the grace of God, we never repent. And it's an accurate description of God that he will create torment for those who don't repent. 
Now, that's the truth that none of us ever, ever tell anybody that we supposedly love. We don't ever tell people that if they are proud and shake their fists in the face of God, that God will torment them. And yet, what's the point of reading that chapter from Revelation if we don't realize that's what's coming to those of us who don't repent? That's the purpose of it being in Scripture. So, can we all agree that that's a slap across the face to all of us? We don't like to think of God that way. We don't like to think that, that, that God creates and meets out, M-E-T-E, torment for the wicked. We don't like to think that the wicked are anybody. There's no such thing as a wicked person. You know, you can have wicked people make movies, write novels, put together uh, television shows. You can have people uh, writing legal opinions. You can have wickedness on full display everywhere, and we still think that God owes everybody kindness and compassion and overlooking their sin. People are shaking their face in the fist of God in our culture today. It's obvious to anybody who's half alive, and we can't quite read that chapter in Revelation and think, is this true? Can God really be like this? Is God really going to torment the wicked? It just said it. God will withhold death from them. They will want to die, but they will not be able to die. So now, again, I come back and say, every word of Scripture is contrary to our stupidity. And you say, well, do you have to be so obnoxious and call it stupidity? Well, unless I name it as stupidity, you'll not realize how contrary to the wisdom of God it is. In Scripture, it says man's foolishness. So take your pick, stupid, foolish. Which means uneducated, right? But no, it doesn't. Because education is the wisdom of man, and God says that's foolishness to God. So whatever it is in your life that has caused you to look at that description of the torment of the wicked and then the statement, the declaration that they still won't repent, whatever it is that causes you to judge that, whatever it is that causes you to hear it read and just to let it sort of pass over like, you know, a helium balloon, get rid of it. Because God has spoken, he has spoken in his word, and it's profitable, it's helpful, every single word of it. Now, if I were to describe a scripture, for those of you who don't want to admit that any part of scripture is obnoxious, well, I would write the account we just read from the book of Matthew. Because I think that, that Jesus and that Canaanite woman had that exchange precisely for the year 2014 in Bloomington, Indiana. I mean, it is as obnoxious as anything you've ever read in your life. And if you don't see that, wake up. Wake up. Now let's look at it. Jesus went away from there. Where was he? Well, he was over in the Jewish territory. Where did he go? He went 50 miles west to the east coast of the Mediterranean. All right? So he's, he's going to Cape May. He's in Philadelphia. He's going to Cape May. All right? And he's going over there to take a break. I mean, you, you don't know that. It doesn't say it explicitly, but you get the feeling that the weight of ministry and everything. And so he goes off into this territory that's about 50 miles away from the Jews where he's been, Jerusalem, all the cities of the people of God. Now, where does he go? He goes into the land of Canaan. All right? And the first thing you read in the text is this. He went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon, this is the land of Canaan, and a what? And a Canaanite woman. Now, since you're all biblical and you love Jesus and you read your Bibles every day, just like me, no. I did get my Bible reading in this morning. I hope you have a goal that you fail to reach. Some of you, like probably Ben Burlingham, always reach every goal you ever set out, right? <laughs> but the rest of us, I hope you do have a goal to read through the Bible at least once. <laughs> I 
once a year, once a lifetime, once every 10 years, once. Uh, Andrew Dion, who used to be here and is a pastor, and uh, he, I think he once read the Bible through in 30 days. Does anybody remember that? If to, do you remember that? I think he did that, yeah. Now, since you read the Bible, you know that all through the Old Testament, the Canaanites are mentioned, right? What do you know about the Canaanites? Well, let's start at the very beginning, which is a very good place to start. In Genesis eleven thirty one, we read this. This is the account of the very beginning of God's covenant people where Abram is brought up. And we read in Genesis eleven thirty one, Terah, the man Terah, took Abram his son and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. So Terah takes his clan, and he leaves Ur of the Chaldees, and he gets up and goes to the land of Canaan. All right, now, next turn over to Genesis 12, verse 7. And there we read this. The Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Now, what land is that? It's the land of Canaan, okay? And if you skip down to verse 7, you'll see Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem, verse 6, to the Oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land, all right? So these are the Native Americans, They're in the land. You understand? Now the Canaanite was in the land. All right? And then it says, verse 7, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So, Terah leaves Ur of the Chaldees and he's headed to Canaan. Then God says to Abram, I will give you the land of Canaan. All right? Then we go over to chapter 15, verse 13. And then we read that God makes covenant with Abram. There's blood. The blood is God writing his signature on his contract with Abram. That's called a covenant. So there's this bloody contract written, all right? And then God makes this promise in verse 13. He says, God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. What land was that? That was Egypt, all right? They'll be down there, enslaved and oppressed 400 years, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And who's that? That's Egyptians, Okay, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here. Where is here? It's Canaan. Okay, they will return here. And why? And why? Come on, I'm going to wrestle you to the mat. Why? It says... For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So they leave her of the Chaldees. God promises the land of Canaan, of the Canaanites. The Canaanites were in the land. He promises that to Abram. He tells Abram, this will be given to your descendants, who will be more than the sands of the sea and the stars in the sky. And he says, but first, you're going to be oppressed for 400 years in another land before I give you this land. And so then they all go down to Egypt. They're oppressed for 400 years. Finally, God hears their cries, and he brings them out. Now, it requires them to be humbled, doesn't it? They're a fractious, nasty people, aren't they? (laughs) Have you ever read the account of the, of the Israelites in the wilderness? This is like me, all right? Not you, but me, all right? Every time he tells them to do something, they say, no! Every time they get a little bit thirsty, they say, well, I want to go back to slopping pigs. I want to go back to Egypt where we had water and food. And God says, no, 
I'm going to bring you into a promised land. I'm going to bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey. No, I want to go back to slavery and oppression of 400 years. And that is you and that is me. Every sin that you have forsaken for the cause of Christ and for faith, you desire to go back to. Do you understand this? We are the people of Israel in the wilderness. All right? And it's there to tell us how much we love our sin, how much we love the things of our slavery. Before we come to Christ, we're slaves to Satan. And then we come to Christ in faith, and then our hearts are just like the Israelites. We're always wanting to go back to the land of our oppression. And so God disciplines them as they go through the promised land, and then they really fail, and so then they all have to die, all the adults in the wilderness, 40 years. Finally, they come into the promised land. And what does God say as he brings them into the promised land, finally? Well, we read it in Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 to 8. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. All right, get good at saying them because that's a constant refrain in the Old Testament. All right, and the Jebusites, seven nations who are all your inferiors, Seven nations who are stronger than you, all right, greater and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. And remember how I say that everything in Scripture is, is a slap across our face. What if I were to tell you that the promised land was America and the Native Americans were the Canaanites and all the whites were brought over from Europe and commanded by God to wipe out every Native American. Now remember, I said, what if I were to tell you? Don't go out of here and say, Tim Bailey said that, no. I'm saying, but what if I were to say, what you would say to me is, you know, dude, this American exceptionalism stuff, it's old and in the way. I mean, they have every bit as much right to, they have prior right. You know, that's like the Afrikaans telling all of the Africans that, you know, South Africa belong. I mean, come on, people. Do you realize how obnoxious and offensive this is? God says to them that there are nations that are stronger and greater than they are, and he is going to destroy them through the war of his people. Are you with me? And then he says this. He says, when you get into this land... You shall, verse 2, what? Utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do them. You shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, hew down their asherim, and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all the peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Okay, let's go back now. We see Terah coming out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. All right? And he brings his grandson Lot, he brings his son Abram with him. And then God says to Abram, you get up and go to a place I'll show you. And then Abram goes and sees the land of Canaan. God says, I'm going to give this to you. But God says, I'm going to give this to you after 400 years of you and your people's oppression in, a, in another land. And I'm not going to give it to you until what? Do you remember what the account was? He was going to wait until what? Until the Canaanites 
had filled up the cup of God's wrath. All right? God had a plan. God's plan was to set his affection on Abram's descendants. It wasn't because they were impressive. It wasn't because they were strong. It was just because. That's how love is, right? Every woman in here who is married looks at her husband and says, why did he love me? And the answer of the husband is, just because. He set his love on you. And no man can describe why he loves the woman he loves. He can tell you all her good traits. But love is something that is hard to describe and it is hard to explain. And so God says, you had nothing to commend my love, but I loved you. That's what he says. That's the explanation of the Jews. It was nothing about you. It was all about me. I set my love on you. Are you with me? But then he says, I'm not going to fulfill my promises to you and to Abram. I'm not going to fulfill them until the wickedness of the Canaanites is filled up. All right? So the very thing that is a promise and a blessing to the Jews is a curse and a judgment to the Canaanites. And God's not embarrassed about this. God's not sitting around thinking, well, I, I wish I could draw the curtain on this part of my decrees. My will, you know. Hey, here, here, let's put up a curtain and, and we'll deal with the Canaanites behind it. And then we'll let the curtain, you know, we'll spread the, And then there are the Israelites triumphantly coming into the land of Canaan. No, 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 no. God says, listen, I'm going to keep you out for 400 years so that they will give themselves to every form of wickedness. Now, what forms of wickedness did they give themselves to? What wickedness did God have to allow to develop? Well, Probably the most notorious thing we know about the Canaanites is they were always killing their children in the worship of their God. Does it sound anything like the people that lived in North and South America? Right? Where you find mountains of bones of human beings sacrificed to the gods in ancient America? And that's what the Canaanites do. That's always what happens in a state of nature where Christian faith has not been salt and light. And because we as Christians are not salt and light in America today, we can't even bring ourselves to talk to our neighbors, then America is going back to paganism. On every level, that's what's happening, right? We are filling up the cup of God's wrath today in America. Year after year, we're slaughtering 1.3 million of our unborn children. We're also slaughtering defective children in the womb and newborns. Newborns with spina bifida, they reported 10, 20 years ago, were simply being taken out to holding places without giving any surgery to heal up their wounds, and they died. And it was all intentional. And then we take Terry Schiavo and other feeble people, and we stop feeding them. And then the old people... America's bloodthirsty. It has high-sounding, high-minded, high-philosophical reasons for why we're bloody, but we're just bloody. We're just normal bloody all through Scripture. And that's what the Canaanites were. They were just a bloody people. They didn't think anything about human life. They take their little babies, they put their babies in the mouths of their idols and then light them on fire. All right? And you say, oh, that's awful. And I say, what do you think's going on in Planned Parenthood? On South Walnut, you know, by Kroger? And you say, well, there's no gods over there. And I say, how about education? How many babies are slaughtered every week because the woman has been told by her parents that she is to finish her degree before she has a child? Right? Listen, if education isn't an idol in America, there ain't no idol. <laughs> There's no higher value in America than education. There's no higher value in Presbyterianism than education. Ah. And so this is the Canaanites. They give themselves to the slaughter of their children. They give themselves to the slaughter of their neighbor. They give themselves to every form of sexual perversion. They're ungrateful, and so God gives them over to the evil lusts. Read Romans 1. It's exactly what was going on in Canaan. And so finally... Century after century after century, after four centuries, God sends in his people and he says, you're to utterly wipe them out. Why? Because their wickedness has reached the top and I'm done with them. Okay? Now, does God have a right to do that? 
God is holy. God answers to no man. God does not answer to our perverse sense of fairness or justice. God is God. I am not God. I am a sinful man. But I'm here to tell you, God does not answer to your filthy sense of fairness. He does not pander to you. He does not wish that you liked him. I do that. He doesn't. He demands that you serve him. And there's a huge cosmos of difference between wishing that he liked you and demanding that you serve him, that you glorify him. So if you ask yourself whether or not God had a right to wipe out the Canaanites for their wickedness, the answer, the correct answer is yes. And if you ask whether it was right for him to command this rabidly nationalistic people known as the Jews to mistakenly interpret his command in such a way that they get to inherit the Canaanites' land. You see, that's how our perverse brain thinks about it. We think, well, these, these, the Jews are always like that, you know. <laughs> you know, if Bob had his way, he'd be, you know, he'd be colonizing every home of our, he'd, he'd have some of his men living in every home of this, and we'd all, you know, that's the way Bob is. He's a colonizer, you know, and he's always out there. This is Bob, and he's a Jew. Actually, he's a Christian, but he's a Jewish Christian. Well, you can imagine how Bob would expand his territory, right, and get some crazy impression that he should wipe out all of the rest of us because, I mean, but this is how we think about the Jews in the land of Canaan. We think that they were a people group that had like really, really wacko senses of what Uh, God was telling them to do and then they recorded them in a book and here you read it and it says wipe them all out completely and we go yikes but then it's the Bible so we give them a pass you know but if I were to say that God commanded the Puritans to come here and wipe out all the Native Americans so that the land could be purified of its wickedness (laughs) any of you public school teachers want to take that into your social studies class You know, that's a non-start. And I remember, if I were, I did not just say that. Okay. Now, the Canaanites were to be removed. The Canaanites were to be removed after 400 years because God said that they needed to fill up the wickedness. The wickedness was the same wickedness we have today. When God's people, the Jews, came in, God told them to wipe them out. He told them to tear down every place of idolatry, to tear down their gods. He told them not to marry, not to make contracts with them, to utterly destroy them. Okay? Now, are we all okay with that? Listen. If you're not okay with that, you're not okay with what happens between Jesus and this woman. Because that's the entire context for the exchange between Jesus and this woman. She is identified immediately as what? A Canaanite woman. Now, with that background, when I keep reading to you, it's going to make perfect sense to you. And an Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out saying, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. It's kind of weird. She's cross-dressing, isn't she? She's a Canaanite, but she calls him son of David. Well, who is David? Well, David is like William the Conqueror to the Brits. You know, he's like the great hero. And here you have the very people that David destroyed right? You have her citing him as, and it is a commendation, because she's a supplicant. So she's kind of weird. She's a Canaanite woman, but she's son of David. So she's already doing a form of obeisance, which is not to be confused with obesity. (laughs) 
Now, remember how I tell you that every word you don't know, there's a reason you don't know it. And this is another example. Why do you not know the word obeisance? Well, it's because it's completely incomprehensible to a democratic American. Who would you ever pay obeisance to? You say, would you define it? I say, okay, here is obeisance. Okay? You're down on your knees. You have your head to your ground. You will not give them direct eye contact. You'll be down like this, right? The only obeisance in Bloomington is when we kneel, when we pray, and that is obeisance to God, and it's when the cult prostitutes of IU basketball make a circle around the big flag two-thirds of the way through the game. And they get down on their knees and they hold their hands above their head. It happens every game and they fall on their faces to the flag, up and down. It's been going on. It's said to be the best routine in all of college sports. And it is perfect, perfect obeisance or idolatry. And so it says, the Canaanite from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. And then we read, But he, Jesus, did not answer her a word. Now, if there was a woman who, say, was... uh, Let's say that she was... uh, I don't know how we would identify it by appearance... Um, but just a woman that didn't belong here, right? Uh, Say she was Arab or something, you know. Yeah, let's say that she came in with a full covering. What's it called? A a perka, okay? A burka. All right. And she came up and she began to, to, to cry out to me, you know, preacher of Christ. That's about what she was saying, son of David, right? And she says, has mercy. And what if I, didn't, I acted like I didn't hear her? You remember that time we had a woman in the second row in the middle of the sermon, she raised her hand. You know, what if I had acted like I didn't see her hand? Would that have gone on, gone off well with all of you? No, it wouldn't have. Some of you would have thought that was superior to what I did. But it's hard when somebody, you know, like, Joni, stand up and say, come on, just stand up and do it. Just say what he, she said. Say, Go on, yell at me. No, no, come on. This is your daughter. Come on, your daughter, you need me. Come on, what are you going to do? You're going to be very intense and you're going to yell, yell. Come on, yell. Come on, it's, it is you, come on. Oh, is there a mother in the house? Come on, some mother, stand up and yell at me. Have mercy on me, Lord. Yeah, yeah, now that's, yeah, yeah. Now that's, now, if I just, okay, you, you keep doing it. Stand up and keep doing it. Come on. No, come on, do it, do it, help me. Okay, now you stand up and do the disciple. Remember the disciples did? Now you keep doing it. Come on, yell. Uh, Would you shut her up, please? Uh, She's really disturbing everybody here. Uh, She needs to be quiet. Please make her. Okay. Okay, now listen to me. This is what happened. And if you fault me for having a play in the middle of a service, (laughs) so be it. But listen, imagine what it says about Jesus. He did not answer her a word. It was so awful that the disciples tried to get him, tried to get her, tried to shut it up. Now, is Jesus winning any points with you here? Come on, guys. This is her daughter. She's pleading with him. 
and Jesus does nothing. Do you feel the tension? And then it says, and his disciples came and implored him, saying, send her away because she keeps out. And this is exactly what Brian just did to me. Would you please shut her up? It's really bothering everybody. And implicit behind what Brian said to me is, if you're not going to help her, shut her up. But put us out of our misery. We can't handle it. And Jesus, he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus just explained his silence. I am not here for the Canaanites, filthy Canaanites. I am here for the lost sheep of Israel. Now, people, if you don't hate Jesus at this point, there is no human compassion in you. Come on, people. We refuse to read the Bible with eyes that see and ears that hear. I want to leave that option off the table for you right now. I want you to feel this exactly the way it is. Jesus is so unbelievably uh, offensive to us here because it's, it's racism, it's sexism, it's Semitism. <laughs> right? It's not anti, it's Semitism. It's exactly the reason that the whole world is anti-Semitic. But she came. So now, come on up. Yell as you come. Keep coming. Come on, do it for us. All right, now. Okay. So now she comes. Do you see? This is what a mother does. And notice, could you just stay there for a second, please? But she came and began to bow down before him, saying what? Don't look. Tell me, what did she say? Wait, wait, what? I thought I heard somebody say, Lord, help her. Well, anyhow, I want to point out to you that the mother says, help me. Now, this is pure motherhood, isn't it? Pure motherhood. There is no separation, no division between mother and daughter, is there? Lord, help me. Isn't that beautiful? That's femininity. (laughs) Okay, that's just... All right, it's Lord help me, and he answered and said, now imagine this, okay, imagine this. He answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That's what he said. Now, do you like me yet? Do you like Jesus yet? Do you like Jesus? The answer is be honest and say no. Would you be honest and say you hate him? Think of how she felt. And what is her decision now? He has said it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Who is the dog? This woman. And her daughter. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Thank you. Go ahead and sit down. Every single one of you is an entitlement baby. Every single one of you. You have been raised by your mother to think that the world owes you food and clothing and diapers and even ice cream and cell phones. You have been raised to think that the rich of this land owe you their money because you were raised in systemic poverty, because you're a widow, 
because you're black. Everything about your life is a demand and you believe that God owes you salvation. And God owes you nothing. Because widow, wife, old, young, boy, girl, you deserve God's wrath. That's all. I don't care how much your mother loves you. I don't care how much your father loves you. Your mother's a fool and your father's a conniver. Unless they raise you to realize that God owes you nothing. He just doesn't owe you anything. Now, you can look at me and you can say, what a nasty preacher. But then, are you going to be prepared to see what happens in Revelation? If your preacher's always pandering to you and telling you what a sweetheart you are, and actually I do... (laughs) I do resemble that implication. (laughs) But I hope that I also show you that you are owed nothing by God. Do you know something? It was a great relief when my mother died. Because I no longer had that woman who from the time I was born until the time she died kept telling me, Tim, God owes you nothing. I mean, that is a pretty good description of the entire curriculum my mother ever had for me. I can't tell you how many times I heard those exact words out of my mother's mouth. And nowadays, everybody's taught that everybody owes everybody everything. I mean, a wife is even owed emotional intimacy from her husband. Intimacy. Incomprehensible. Now, I'm kidding, right? I mean, yes, a wife does deserve emotional intimacy from her husband, right? But I mean, this is kind of against the grain, if you know what I mean, men. It's the reason they have books, you know, sex begins in the kitchen, Right? So if a wife deserves emotional intimacy, what do you think your children deserve? Well, they do deserve iPhones. They do deserve an education. They deserve health care. They deserve a right to privacy. The EU tells us Google's going to have to erase all the pages. I mean, there is nothing that you are not owed. By whom? Well, by the government. By the state government. The state government owes us the right to marriage if we're homosexually inclined, right? Right? The state should readjust wealth in such a way that the people who don't work share in the benefit of the people that do, says the Republican Party. But the, the Democratic Party says that the people who have lived under systemic oppression are able to have some of the perquisites of uh, the life of Riley that, that corporate America has, not by virtue of dint of ethic of work or anything. And so you've got the Democrats saying these people are owed things, and you've got the Republicans saying these people are owed things, right? And a pox upon both, both of them, right? But everything is being owed. You come in my office and I owe you relief of whatever emotional pain you have, and if I don't give it to you, I'm a failure as a pastor. And if I add to your emotional pain, I'm a Puritan, I'm an abuser. Right? Come on, people, say yes, right. And if I disagree with you, when you blame your father because you're 67 years old, and you're still blaming your father, and you have a right to privacy, you have a right to be a sinner without anybody meddling with you, And you have a right to complain about your dad in my office and have me say, oh, poor thing. Everything about our culture is telling you what rights you have. And the rights today are not the rights of the president and the king and Trump. It's a very curious thing. In past generations, it was the people who had the money, who had the power, and who had the soldiers, right? They were the ones that demanded the rights of their position. Well, in America, it's the very opposite. America says, I won't say the words, 
to the king, to the rich man, to anybody who claims by, by virtue of his birth, his genealogy, the wealth he's inherited. America hates that. And so what does America have? You never get done with entitlement. All America has done is exchange the entitlement of birth and genealogy and riches for the entitlement of the pathetic misfit who can't stand on his own two feet and acknowledge his failure. And so America is spending every bit of national wealth we have to try to cover up the indecency of people's failure. And so which is, which is more oppressive? <laughs> you know, the king? Or the poor man whose mother never loved him? Which is it? Which is more oppressive? That you live your life pandering to victims who claim they've never been responsible for any bad thing that's ever happened in their life. And they're owed health insurance and they're owed higher education, which really means lower education. <laughs> okay? I, you realize that's the next thing. They've nationalized healthcare. They're almost done nationalizing higher education. And the next thing, we will all be providing everybody as a right will be higher education, Right? You all see this coming. It's almost complete. And then we read this story of this Canaanite woman. And I ask you, the church that you have grown up in, the preachers that you have sat under, the elders who have disciplined you, the older women who have instructed you, the mother who gave you birth, have any of them instructed and disciplined you in such a way that you would say to Jesus that even the dogs get the crumbs off the table. You know, if you ask me who I love more, Mary, as she washed Jesus' feet with her hair, or this woman, it's nip and tuck with me. And what's the common denominator? Meekness and humility. Listen to me, people. I will not pander to you. I will not do it. You are responsible for your sin. You are responsible for your sin. You are responsible for the behavior of your children. You are responsible for the rebellion of your wife. Do you understand me? You are responsible for the character of your children, mothers. Your elders are responsible for the sin in this church. She was a dog. I'm not saying that. Jesus said it. And if she had denied this, if she had said, how dare you, would she have gone from that place with her daughter healed? No. So look, how, how big an obstacle is it for us to humble ourselves so that God will lift us up in due time? I mean, when God done lifted you up, you done be lifted up. Right? Think of Daniel. Think of Joseph. <laughs> I mean, how much are you giving up? You pathetic victim. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and in due time, he will lift you up. Uh It's not complicated, right? Come on, people. It's not complicated. If you humble yourself under God, then the whole world is your possession. 
you own a, the cattle on a thousand hills. Every fruit tree in your yard will bear fruit. Your wife will be like an olive shoot, basswood, right? Basswood, you cut it down and then a hundred shoots come out of a basswood trunk when you cut it down. That's what olive shoots are, okay? The years of your widowhood or your abandonment by your husband will be the most fruitful years of your life and you will be so happy that your pagan husband is finally gone. Now you say, well, how could you say something like that? Well, (laughs) I was with a woman of faith this past week in my home with her children, and that's what she said to me. She's starting to live by faith, divorced, or going to be divorced, and she's living by faith. And you say, well, God hates divorce. And I say, listen, you have to start beginning to live by faith. This woman was called by Jesus a dog, And she said, even the dogs get the crumbs off the table. She wasn't living the victorious Christian life, you know, where every day and every way the world was getting better and better. She humbled herself under the mighty hand of God. And then, from the ground, what? There blossomed what? Life that shall endless be. Okay? God doesn't need our sense of justice and fairness. He doesn't need it. God has his own justice and it all runs straight through him vertically. It's very hierarchical and the principle is this, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and then he will lift you up. So stop lifting yourselves up. Stop justifying your sins. Stop blaming other people. Stop talking about your entitlements. You are entitled to nothing. Listen to my mother. She says, Tim, God owes you nothing. And she's the best mother this world has ever seen. Can you imagine Tim Bailey with an entitlement mentality and including everything else that's wrong with me? (laughs) Okay. 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 Let's pray. Father, would you please have mercy on us? And would you please help us to live together humbly? Husband, wife, son, daughter, mother, father, grandmother, grandfather, single sister, single brother, homosexually tempted, heterosexually tempted, poor and rich, educated and uneducated. Father, would you please help us to be meek and humble like this wonderful Canaanite woman. And would you heal our children, we pray in Jesus' name.